As I said, we have a special guest here, Austin Duncan, today. And just a little uh, background. God has shown his great love for Evergreen Church through people and from within, but also outside of our local church. And as I mentioned, Austin serves as an elder at Grace Community Church. We've, we've had their pastor preach last year for us. He's the director of our uh, seminary program, the one that I'm a part of. And how God has shown his great love for Evergreen is by, through Austin, is this. When I was there just as a visitor, as a guest for about two years or so, Austin said, hey, why don't you join our program? I think you can handle it. You might as well get the credit since you are doing it. And so he encouraged me. And, and, and so God used Austin to bring me into the DMN doctoral ministry program at the Master Seminary. But also God used Austin to provide and, and and as the seminary has offered up a scholarship to fund the education so austin we're grateful for your brother and and uh church family this is a friend coming to preach uh, for us and and to us and uh so let's give austin a warm evergreen welcome here thank you brother hey evergreen it's good to see you Better circumstances than last time. It was it was full blown Rona uh, last time, and and I did preach on a surfboard. Uh, Rocky had I think built the stage himself, and it was a tiny little little stage, and it it uh, I think you probably had to build a, another one the week after. I wasn't I wasn't so good to that one, but it's it's nice to be indoors, isn't it? I like it. Uh, Rocky, what a joy to be here. Thank you for inviting me uh, to the leaders. Thank you for, for having me preach today. Uh, it was, it's a privilege to be with you. Uh, Rocky talked about God's providence in bringing him to study at the Master's Seminary. It's absolutely our privilege. Uh, it's, I don't take any credit for it. Dr. MacArthur told me what to do. He's my boss, and so he says, Rocky's my friend, give him everything. And I said, okay, yes, sir. Uh, little did I know Rocky would become my friend and Sharla, their family, really sweet family. We've been able to connect with them a little bit uh, with the Duncans. And you're, you're so blessed as a church, uh, not only to live in the SGV, the greatest culinary uh, <laughs> pocket in all of Southern California, in my opinion, as a uh, you know, proud fan of Pan-Asian cuisine, but uh, you're very blessed, not just geographically, but pastorally. You're, you're blessed to have Rocky as, as your pastor. He's such a, uh, he talked a little bit about how he came to the seminary. I mean, he, he was already there. He, he was so hungry to learn and so teachable and humble and, can we use the word coachable, that he was sitting in these doctoral classes, not getting any credit, not, I mean, he was getting there on time. Some of our actual students weren't even getting there on time. He was doing the work and not even, you know, he was buying the books, doing the work. He wasn't even enrolled in the classes. And that says something about this man. It says something about his, his humility. And to have a pastor is one thing. To have a pastor who's teachable, who's, who's a learner, who's a disciple himself, uh, you're you're richly blessed, and we all want to be that way, don't we? We all want to be always learning, always growing, always improving, always uh, drawing closer to the Lord, always increasing in our knowledge of of the Lord and and of His will for our lives. And so you're well led in that way as as Rocky serves this church and preaches to you the Word of God. And I'm sure you've benefited from the recent series in Titus. I've been tuning in a little bit and keeping track of Rocky as his doctoral advisor. So uh, keep praying for Rocky. It's not over. May is graduation. He could still flunk. So <laughs> just know that that's, that's, you know, we trust the Lord. We'll see what happens. But fill out your survey, please. Will you open your Bible to Psalm 11? Again, it's just a joy to be here. I'm very, very grateful uh, for this invitation. Psalm 11, the title of this sermon is Faith or Flight. Faith or Flight. And like all believers, I know you love the book of Psalms. It has so much encouragement for our hearts. Uh, gives words to our faith in, in ways that, that minister to us when we don't know what to say. And I think Psalm 11 is a prime example of that. Let me start by reading you Psalm 11. 
and, and then we'll, we'll walk through this and see what the Lord has for us. Psalm 11, for the choir director, a psalm of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. This is the very word of the living God. May his spirit write it on our hearts. There are questions that every age faces. Perennial questions. Generational questions. Some of them are philosophical questions about the nature of human existence and good and evil. Questions that people ask in every age and around the world. Sometimes these questions haunt the askers. Psalm 11 has one of these questions, one of these timeless, unchanging questions, a question that confronts humanity age to age, a question that believers are perplexed by. Psalm 11 asks a perennial question, a despairing and classic question. David, the author of Psalm 11, the shepherd king, is faced with this question that every generation of God's people have asked. When we survey the scene and see what's happening in our world, what's happening in our society, Things seem to be going upside down or or sideways or whatever direction you perceive them to be going. The idea behind this question is one that observes social upheaval, political turmoil, personal drama, even natural phenomenon at times. So whatever provokes the question from age to age, whether it's Natural disasters, earthquakes and hurricanes and, and trouble like that. I mean, someone burned down the 10 freeway yesterday, I hear. So I don't know how that happens, but it happens. So it's something like that. Or if it's something political or, or personal in your life that things just seem to be falling apart. The question posed in Psalm 11 in verse 3 is if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's a burning question. Frank Gabalin calls it uh, the burning question of his day, and he wrote that in the 1950s. Jim Boyce, the pastor of First Presbyterian Philadelphia, 40 years ago, called it a classic question. And we understand a question like that, don't we? We understand the, the dilemma of a question When the foundations are being destroyed, what are the righteous to do? Carl Henry wrote this, If modern culture is to escape the oblivion that has engulfed the earlier civilizations of man, the recovery of the will of the self-revealed God in the realm of justice and law is crucially imperative. Return to pagan misconceptions of divinized rulers or divinized cosmos or quasi-Christian conception of natural law or natural justice will bring inevitable delusionment. Not all pleas for transcendent authority will truly serve God or man, 
by aggrandizing law and human rights and welfare to their sovereignty, all manner of earthly leaders eagerly preempt the role of the divine and obscure the living God of scriptural revelation. The alternatives are clear. We return to the God of the Bible or we perish in the pit of lawlessness. Well, that's a fancy philosophical, theological way of asking the same question. What are the believers supposed to do when the wheels seem to be falling off of civilization? And it helps to remind ourselves that the question was asked thousands of years ago by King David. And so apparently believers are still around, aren't we? And so part of the answer is this is a timeless question. This is a question that's always going to face believers in in a fallen world. And sometimes our perception of how bad things are needs to have that historical perspective to say, yes, we live in a rotten and depraved culture, but it's not like the Roman Empire was nice and friendly and, you know, focused on the family. At the same time, it would be naive to not see the changes happening in front of us, in the schools, in our government, in even people's perception of ethics. There's a demoralization going on, a secularization of our society, the emergence of an entirely new kind of morality. There are seismic changes that have happened in a very brief period of time. Churches in America are in decline. The number of people who even identify as religious has uh, dropped almost in half. Dramatic changes are taking place in our society. And there are times when God's people feel as if all our normal securities are nowhere to be found. Our usual protections have vanished. And some of you feel this on a personal level this morning. We all go through seasons of life where we feel more vulnerable, in danger, unstable, surrounded by wickedness, not just in this world, but perhaps in your own heart and family. And you're unsure of what tomorrow holds. It's times like this when safety seems to slip away. And it's times like this that call for a renewed trust in a sovereign God, in his reign, in his judgment, where we find security. That's the message of Psalm 11. A song of confidence and faith in the face of pressure and severe crisis. And it's perennial question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It finds resolution in this song. It doesn't just ask a probing, penetrating, problematic question. Instead, it asks the question, what do we do when the wheels are falling off of society and righteousness seems to be under assault and wickedness seems to be everywhere around us? Morals are under assault. Social norms are changing. There are times when God's people feel as if all our normal securities are nowhere to be found. Our usual protections have vanished in this world. Look all around. You see anarchy and wickedness and societal decay and examples of injustice and turmoil and the temptation to flee and run away or wish that was 20 years ago or 40 years ago is very real for so many believers. I mean, there was even a book that came out about it a little while ago, written by a Catholic theologian, a Benedict option, the idea to sum it up, run away, get out of society, start your own society, cloister off, buy land in the woods. And you all know people that have done this, right? Or at least talked about it. You've considered it. We live in Southern California and we think maybe, maybe we could find a Christian utopia if we get out of this state. Nashville is calling. Colorado Springs. Place where Christians live in perfect peace and harmony. Yeah, right. Or we can choose to have faith in a sovereign God who rules over this world in perfect wisdom. So this morning, if you feel under assault, 
under a sail, if you feel surrounded by an increasing tide of wickedness and unsure of what tomorrow holds for our churches, for our families, for our souls, King David has a song he wants to sing to you. A song who feel for those who feel like safety is slipping away. A song of trust in a sovereign God's reign and judgment where we can find lasting security. Psalm number 11 is a song of trust, a song of faith, a song of confidence in the face of extraordinary pressure and severe crisis, and it presents a solution to this timeless question. What do we do when everything feels uncertain? When crisis is all around, how does faith respond with certainty when uncertainty is all we see? Do we flee? Do we stay? Well, its answer is whatever we do, we believe. This question's been asked different ways, in different translations even, some of them a little more creative. The bottom's dropped out of the country. Good people don't have a chance. Or the Good News Bible, there's nothing a good man can do when everything falls apart. But the question is our question this morning. How does faith respond when the bottom drops out? What are the righteous to do faced with the option of fleeing or believing? What's faith's perspective in trouble? The psalmist, in his circumstance, was faced with a dilemma. We don't know the exact circumstance. It just says a psalm of David. But likely, it was one of the many times that David had to flee from crazy Saul. He had to cut and run. And he didn't know what to do with the kingship that was promised to him. And so the psalmist's temptation to cut and run, to flee to the mountains, the panic that was around him provokes him in this song to assert that God is his refuge and is more of a safe place to hide than even the hills of Judea. A higher perspective is what David gives to us. He teaches us to consider God's perspective from his holy temple and heavenly throne. He tells us to think on God's judgment that in time, in God's time, he will always vindicate the righteous. So whatever the circumstance was, perhaps 1 Samuel 18, an instance where David fled to the hills and eventually learned that God could preserve him on the run and would learn that God could preserve him in the palace just as well, or whether it was later in David's ministry when he was fleeing from his rebellious son Absalom or from armies or traitors, the question isn't just David, it's ours. Where do we go when it feels like our surroundings could choke out our faith? Let's follow this by way of dividing it into parts here. And the first part, point one, we'll give it a name. Verses one through three, the discernment that faith requires. The psalmist begins by putting his cards on the table, by letting us know everything that's in his head and heart, and he helps us enter into his crisis by describing it and gives voice to the safety that he's longing for. So verses one through three, the discernment that faith requires. Look at the first words in verse one. We hear in this song, it's David's initial assertion, his first conviction. David's starting point is glorious. He says, in the Lord, I take refuge. No matter what else is going on, this is where David starts. He employs the covenant name of God uh, four times in this psalm. It's capitalized Lord in your Bible. It is the covenant name Yahweh. It's the name that God gave his people, the name that he was to be identified with. And so David says at the outset, Yahweh, in Yahweh, I take refuge. At the very beginning, David testifies that he knows that he's in the safest possible place. And this is an example of his discerning faith that requires the right starting point, the right posture, the right beginning. And sometimes confidence is is the hardest thing to, to gain in our uncertain world. It's sorely lacking in our world. And even believers, Christian people, find security in all the wrong things. They find it in their retirement account or their real estate holdings or, or uh, some kind of 
societal assurance that there's going to be, you know, a leveling of the stock market or there's going to be some kind of increase and interest rates will eventually go down and, and people find this kind of assurance in, in financial prosperity or in possibilities or some find it in not just the accumulation of things but in the numbing of their pain through alcohol or drugs or they find it in a relationship where they find stability or they have a really fancy security system on their home but listen to david's opening words god is our refuge this is a very psalmy thing to say that's a technical word rocky psalmy psalm 11 says the same thing psalm 5 uh, says the same thing as Psalm 11. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. Or that famous Psalm, Psalm 46. Our God is a refuge and a strength, a very present help in trouble. Or Psalm 91, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Over and over again, dozens of times, the Psalms assert that God is a refuge. Almost 50 times in the Psalms alone, the picture is God is a refuge. He is a place to hide. A sheltered person is a person who's trusting in God. That's not always how we use the word sheltered, right? When we say that person is sheltered, we mean, you know, they were homeschooled or whatever and they, you know, they've never had to you know, walk through a hobo fire on the 10 freeway or uh, they've never seen a fight on the subway or, or whatever. And so we say that person's sheltered. And we mean it in kind of a disparaging way, like they haven't gotten out much. But when the psalmist talks about shelter, he's saying it in the most possible, most positive possible way. How wonderful it is to be sheltered, protected, hidden in God. It's not that David isn't out there in the world. He was. He was in the king's court. He was under significant peril. He was the anointed king, but someone else was sitting on the throne. I mean, David understood what it was like to lead a nation, to encounter significant political and social problems and upheaval. He understood the, the pain that his own sin had brought into his life. And all of that was, was part of David's testimony. But David understood in an ultimate sense, before he thought about anything else, he remembered who God was to him and how wonderful it is to be sheltered by God. Martin Luther, October 17th, 1517, that spark that started the Protestant Reformation, he was a man who was hunted and hounded and assailed by the kings and the popes of his day, and he felt quite under attack. He used the words of one of these refuge psalms, Psalm 46, to write these famous words, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, a wall, a, a castle moat, never failing. You see, a discerning faith at its outset knows who God is as refuge and shelter and protector. But then, look at verse 1, we hear a voice. Unclear where the voice concludes most translations take it through the end of verse three likely this is the voice of a friend because the portrayal of the wicked is i think coming in verse two and three and so i take it to be someone who's not trying to give david bad counsel but someone who is telling david how things actually are starting in verse one this counselor says to david flee as a bird to your mountain. And so eh, whether it's the voice of a counselor or it's a mocker or it's even a depiction of David's own thoughts and heart, the voice says that there's something to be afraid of. There's imminent danger. And it's urging David to go find security and advises him to run. Whether David would run to the south where he'd wandered so many times hiding from Saul and an advancing army this counsel is for David and not against him. He's supposed to get out of here while he still can. 
But the counsel that David receives, whether it's internal or external, whether it's friendly or, or wise or unwise, is counsel that doesn't realize that for David, in this particular instance, the choice lies between fleeing and believing. That's how David presents it. For David, in this instance, the choice is between fleeing and believing. He can run in faith, and that could be good counsel, or he could stay in faith. That could be good counsel. Both are a possibility, and both are honestly biblical. Remember when Peter tried to protect Jesus in Matthew 16 and said to him, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter thought he was giving some pretty solid advice when Jesus predicted his suffering and death. Jesus had to adjust Peter's counseling techniques and tell him, get behind me, Satan. That's a well-meaning counselor, but he's dead wrong, right? His advice was actually satanic. This voice says to David, flutter off, bird, to your mountain. Fly, little bird, fly. Similar advice is given in Psalm 55. The psalmist says, oh, if I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. I would wander away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. And so verse 2 in Psalm 11 says, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. That phrase upright in heart is an envelope in the Hebrew. It's, it's framing this thing. You see it in verse 2, the upright in heart. You see it again at the end of the song. In verse 7, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright in heart will behold his face. That concept is framing this whole argument that we're growing and learning in and how to respond to trouble in our life. What does it mean to be upright in heart? It means to be straight. It's the word for straight rather than something that's crooked. The Psalms depict the upright person as marked by honesty and integrity. Psalm 7, Psalm 32, Psalm 36, lots of examples. The upright in heart is someone who is who they say they are. They're genuinely trying to follow God faithfully. And for the upright in heart, there's clear and obvious opposition in verse 2. There's a temptation to fear the wicked. Look at verse 2. They're deadly and they're dangerous. The wicked are depicted as assassins in verse 2. They have their, their arrow pulled back in the string to shoot in the darkness at the upright in heart. It's this, this sniper kind of scenario. There, there's, you can't even see where the enemies are. It's that dangerous. And so David's temptation is to fear the wicked. They're deadly and they're dangerous. They're depicted as assassins ready to fire, aimed at the upright in heart from the cover of darkness, unseen, night vision in the crosshairs. It's aligned. The wicked are ready to let the arrow go, to send it hissing through the darkness. Threats all around. And that's when the question drops. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The paraphrases, I think, are helpful. There's nothing a good man can do when everything falls apart. That's the good news Bible. The bottom's dropped out of the country. Good people don't have a chance. What are the righteous to do when faced with the option of fleeing or believing? This fabric of society is becoming undone. One author recently wrote that America is entering a new dark age brought about by, quote, rising hedonism, waning religious observance, the ongoing breakup of the family, a general loss of cultural coherence. And we all know the council. Some say it's time to hide, to close ourselves off from this evil world, to insulate our children from its influence. And the perennial question is glowing in front of us. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Flight or faith? And it's not that the faithful never flee. Remember in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul was lowered in a basket out of the city to escape. There was plenty of times in King David's life when he was on the run in a faithful way. Jesus himself told the disciples in Matthew 10, the passage that we read this morning, that there would come a time when they would be persecuted in one town and Jesus' advice is that they should flee to the next town. But the issue is, is where's the place of faith? And that requires some discernment, some judgment, doesn't it? We have to think about what's right here. How do we run in faith? How do we stay in faith? 
And there's some things we've got to tell ourselves, right? I mean, the biggest problem that, that I have wherever I go is that I go with me, right? I don't know what your biggest problem is. My biggest problem is me. To quote the poets of our, our age, me, the problem is me. Wherever you go, you take your biggest problem with you, yourself, your own weaknesses, your own sinful proclivity, and you can't run from you. There's nowhere you can outrun your own sinful heart and the wickedness that, that plagues us the most as humble and honest believers, the wickedness that we see in our own hearts and in our family is something that you cannot run from. And so there's a kind of flight that's faithless to choose panic over peace. And so how does a believer decide in a, in a wicked and crumbling society if this is basket over the wall, the Apostle Paul getting lowered down kind of a time, or stand and face and pray and trust kind of a time? Well, the answer is discernment and faith and prayer. Different Christians will decide differently. The Puritan William Gurnall said, troubled times are praying times. Flee in fear is not the answer. We can't run away. We must run to our God, our refuge, our stronghold. And Jesus prayed for us in John 17 that we would be not of the world, but that we would be in the world. And safety can be such an idol in a fallen world. Safety isn't always what we think it is. But safety can always be found in our anchor, our refuge. In verse 1, the Lord is our refuge. And so the song starts out with this necessary discernment that faith requires. We've got to figure out that no matter what we're going to do, what we need to do, we need to do it in faith as an expression of trust in the God who protects us no matter where we are. John G. Patton, the famous missionary to the New Hebrides, talked about his greatest night of his life, the sweetest communion he ever had with Jesus was one night when he was hiding in a chestnut tree in Vanuatu. He was a missionary to a group of cannibals. And things had gone okay for John Patton if losing everything is okay. And he'd made a little bit of progress on, on translating the Bible and on reaching these people and one advocate, one guy who was on his side warned him that they were going to come kill him that very night. And so he goes and he hides in this tree at the advice of, of his friend. Not totally sure his friend was his friend, but he goes up in the tree. And, and he looks back on that day in his autobiography. It's great reading. Any Christian would, would benefit from reading it. And he remembers the peace and the communion that he had hiding in a tree. He'd never felt so close to Jesus as that night in the tree. Because ultimately, it's not about our location, our surrounding, or our perception of safety. The discernment that faith requires transcends location and circumstance and hangs on to that immutable reality that for the trusting, God is our refuge. Well, point two, verses four through six. Let's call it the vision that faith needs. The vision that faith needs. Faith needs vision to see the covenant God for who he is. Look at verse four. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he'll rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. The statement of David's faith at the beginning, the Lord is my refuge, is now expanded in verse 4 as his perspective is lifted higher. He's no longer looking at the armies that could conquer him, the enemies that assail him. His vision is a vision of faith, and it's gone all the way up to the very temple of God, the presence of God in heaven, the throne of God. His eyes are eyes of faith because he's looking at what's unseen. And so his statement of faith is expanded. His perspective is lifted higher, right? 
No longer looking at the distant mountains as a place of refuge, he looks higher than the mountains to God himself. The voice of the counselor in verse 2 says, flee, little bird, as to a mountain. And so David decides to run. But not with his feet. He runs with his faith. And he runs to the person and character and stability that he knows is in God. And he says in verse 4, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous and the wicked. The emphasis here is all on who God is. David needs help now. And so he turns not to the mountains which are seen, but to Yahweh who is unseen. He could get to the mountains. He could hide and run there. But instead, in his confession, in this song, he says, I see God. He looks to the one who is unseen. The imagery in the middle of this song is that of throne and the eyes of God and the eyelids of God. It all has to do with things that you can see and the ways that God sees. It reuses the word behold in Hebrew multiple times in this song. All of it is is trying to get us to look at something we cannot see. To look at someone who is unseen. Reminding us and provoking us that the help that we need is in God. And that God is not distant or impersonal or indifferent or removed or far off. And there's two locations depicted in verses 4 through 6. The holy temple and the heavenly throne. The temple was something that, that David understood. In his case, it's the tabernacle, right? His son would build a temple. But the temple or tabernacle was always the physical, geographical location that symbolized the presence of God. It's where heaven met earth. It's where God met with his people. It's where sacrifices were offered. It's where worship was centered. It was the holy temple or the tabernacle. The heavenly throne was not something on earth, but something in heaven. The temple and the ark within it were the earthly manifestations of God's heavenly throne, the actual spatial realm where God dwells. A throne also speaks of God's rule, his sovereign supremacy, his his dominion, his kingship is what's being emphasized and what's on display. And though God is exalted, he's active and watchful. He's beholding. His eyes are depicted. God is spiritual. He doesn't have a body. He's not a physical being. He is God. He's spirit. He doesn't have eyes. That's an anthropomorphic expression. But to speak of God's eyes is to speak of God's watchfulness. To speak of his eyelids is to speak of well, it's to look at something more carefully, right? My, my daughter, my oldest daughter broke her necklace. She's got a job. She bought a necklace. She got a job. She got a necklace. It went just like that. And the first day she has her necklace, it breaks. And so she, she brings it to me. You bring your problems to dad. That's how it works. And I use my aging eyes and my shaky fingers And I get on Amazon and I order necklace repair kit for $7. Because I think I got the juice. I can do this. And it comes in the mail. And I get out the little, it came with a little magnify, a little tweezer, a little tiny, tiny needle nose, tiny. And then all these little, little chain things. And I had to replace the, 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 the loop. You can tell I got a bright future in jewelry repair. And so I get in there. And I cannot see this tiny thing. Glasses on, glasses off, can't see it. I'm trying to line it up. And I'm just like dialing in by squinting at this tiny necklace. And I realize the dumb thing I ordered on Amazon, it's not small enough to fit this delicate chain. So no matter how much I dial in my vision on it, it's just not going to fit. I was using my eyelids to take a closer look at this tiny necklace, which still remains unrepaired in my possession. God's eyelids speak of him scrutinizing, him testing the sons of men, testing the righteous and the wicked. 
The emphasis here is on the imagery of God's throne and God's presence and God's judgment and God's discernment and God's understanding of what truly is right and wrong. So no matter what the world says is right and wrong, no matter how much you're persecuted for what you believe, no matter how much you feel like you're in danger, you're in the minority position, you have to remember that God knows the difference between the wicked and the righteous. And you need to decide which side are you going to be on. God is not distant. God is not impersonal. He is not different, indifferent. He is not removed or far off. And his throne is showing us that his sovereign supremacy is always active, always watchful, always involved, always tested. In Revelation chapter 4, in that scene of God's judgment, the end of times, The Apostle John uses the word throne 12 times. God's throne, God's place of judgment, God's place of rule, God's sovereignty always needs to be in the believer's focus. To know that his judgments, his assessment of things is just and based on his character and his insight and his analysis of things And to know that there's nothing in this world, no miscarriage of justice, no offense, no wrong, no sin, no break of his command, nothing that happens in this world that won't eventually be assessed rightly and perfectly judged and weighed and accounted for by the eyes and the beholding gaze of God. Because God's eyes not only signify judgment in the Psalms, Psalm 33, 18 speaks of the eyes of the Lord as protection for his people. He's not just watching out for what is right and what is wrong. He's scrutinizing and he's aware of us. He's watching over us. He's aware and has interest in us. His eyelids are mentioned because God is unblinking. He's ever watchful. And though the enemies are hidden by darkness in verse 2, that arrow in the darkness of the night, Yahweh sees everything as if it's noonday in the sun with perfect vision. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of Yahweh are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God is not like a surveillance camera that simply rolls tape. He weighs it all in. He tests. The word is a saying in Hebrew. It's the same word that the Hebrew Bible uses for the, the melting down of precious metal, the purifying of gold, That's the kind of test that God does. He's weighing the sons of men. He's testing the righteous and the wicked. And David realizes that that's where his help is. And so he recalls God's first temple and then God's throne. And for those of us who are in crisis, the sovereignty of God is not some academic conception. God's judgment is not an indifferent calculation about eschatology or the end times. Instead, the sovereignty of God and the judgment of God is vital and real. And we beg in our times of need and crisis to to a sovereign God, like we did in prayer this morning as a church, to prove himself, to show himself, to answer our prayers, to intervene, to help and rescue. And what is God like? Verse 5. Look what God is like. His soul hates the wicked. Sounds like he lacks sensitivity, huh? In this modern age. We don't like that kind of language. It actually uses the phrase fire and brimstone. People have told me before, like, I don't like fire and brimstone preaching. Well, I guess you got to rip this page out then. I mean, it says fire and brimstone. It really doesn't matter if you like it or not. Because that portrayal of judgment and that that concept is based in genesis 19 because it was a lovely morning morning in sodom and gomorrah that day until fire and brimstone came down god's judgment rained on that sinful city for their wicked deeds this is a reminder that god's judgment is unavoidable 
No longer the fire with which he tests the righteous, but now an altogether different fire, form, and function. Luke 17. The book of Revelation is full of the smells and sounds of fire. And the faith, the faith that vision, the, the vision that faith has in the middle of this psalm is seeing God as he really is. And God is not a sentimental, grandfatherly, vague deity. He's not what you think he's like. He is who he is. He's a God who loves and a God who hates. He's a God who is passionate and active and real and alive, whose nature and character is what God says it is. Do you know the God of the Bible? Then you know a God of love and a God of hate, a God of perfect beauty and a God of severe judgment. This is who God really is. He's not a storybook, sensitized, simplified for early readers kind of a God. He's not softened on the edges or blurred and bland kind of a God. Because that kind of God cannot save. Because ultimately salvation only makes sense in light of final judgment, doesn't it? And we all say, you know, we're saved. Jesus saved us. Well, what does that mean? Saved from what? Saved from judgment that we rightly deserve. Saved from the the reality of the consequences of our sin and our rebellion against God. If you're saved by faith in Jesus, you're saved from the kind of judgment that any wicked person is counting on whether they know it or not. Ultimate salvation demands final judgment and God promises that he'll right all wrongs and there'll never be a single miscarriage of justice in the entire history of humanity. And if it were not that way, we could not be saved because we are not saved because God sweeps something under the rug to save us. We are saved because God put the punishment that was rightly ours and due to us that we deserved on his perfect son who did not deserve it. The judgment of God is essential and central to our salvation. If there was no righteous judgment of God, there would be no salvation. And if you don't believe that, then you don't believe the message of the cross. That's how serious the judgment of God is. And then finally, he concludes by showing us the hope that faith brings. We find this in verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Faith needs hope to see the face of God. Because what becomes of the righteous? What is the consequence of trusting? What is the assurance that trusting brings? Well, it's this focus yet again on God, but now it's on his righteousness. It's the fact that the Lord loves righteousness because he is righteous. And because of that, those who are upright or righteous, not crooked, not sinful, will behold his face. This song finishes like it started, a focus on God's refuge, telling us that Yahweh is righteous. His nature and his will, Kidner says, what he is and what he loves, that's righteousness. That's the righteousness of God. Calvin, commenting on this passage, says this is a celebration of the righteousness of God which he displays in the preservation of the godly. How's this song end? It ends with a righteous celebration of God's righteousness. It answers the fear and frustration of verse 2 and 3, and it just reminds us this wonderful reality. God, our Lord, loves righteousness. The final line brings it all together. It's the upright one that his face gazes on. That's what it literally says in Hebrew. It is at the upright one that his face gazes. That is a stunning assurance of promise in the face of a world of crumbling foundations. David affirms that the Lord, the righteous judge, will show his face to the upright. In effect, rebutting the words of the wicked who, who say, well, he covers his faith. He doesn't see what's happening here. But what's happening here is that David sees the ultimate commitment of God being for righteousness and therefore for the righteous. And David had to understand, the one who wrote Psalm 32, that there was a way, a way that God would make sinners righteous. In fact, God promised that to David. 
It wasn't by flight, but by confidence in God's favor that David would face his challenges. And the same is true for us. Derek Kidner commenting on this psalm says, if the first line of the song showed where the believer's safety lies, the last line shows where his heart should be. God as refuge may be sought from motives that are too self-regarding, but to behold his face is a goal in which only love has any interest. Safety is what everybody wants. That's why you tell any kid, well, do you want to go to hell or heaven? They're going to likely say, I want to go to heaven. But salvation is more than just a rescue from danger, isn't it? The positive side is that it is to behold his face. It's fellowship with God. Friend, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what the church in the message of the gospel is offering to you is not just safety from the danger of God's wrath. It's also perfect communion and relationship and protection and rescue and fellowship with God. That security only comes with intimacy. You know, when everything appears to be crashing around us, we can turn to a song like this one. A song that doesn't actually tell us to do anything. Lots of psalms have commands. This one doesn't have one. Instead, this is a song that just simply tells us to trust in him. A song that states an unseen reality that tells us who God is and what it's like to follow him and know him and what we can confidently expect when our God is a God of perfect righteousness and when the believer's goal isn't just safety but to behold God's face. The ultimate reality that's before us today, dear church, is will you trust the Lord in difficult times? And that's going to require that discerning faith and that vision of faith and the hope and assurance that only God can bring. Friend, if you're convinced that the sovereign God reigns from his throne right now over this world, if you're convinced and certain that he'll righteously judge the wicked on the basis of his perfectly righteous character, and if you live in awareness that God will destroy all those who oppose him, you can choose faith over flight, and you can have assurance that we will see his face. Father, thank you for your word. We're grateful, God, for how clear it shows us how things really are. In studying this psalm, we're encouraged and engaged to trust you all the more, to know that you protect us, that you watch over us, that in every crisis we have great hope, that by trusting we can see your face. So Father, help us to obey the words we heard this morning, to not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but to fear the one who destroys both body and soul forever. To know, God, that your righteousness and your commitment to righteousness is on display in the gospel and that great exchange that we give our sins to you in repentance and you give us the righteousness of Christ that's not our own. Father, I pray for any here who do not know you, that they would cry out to you, that they would hide themselves in the Savior and the storms of life wouldn't knock us down. Father, thank you for the security we find in you and the help we have when we look to your grace. In Jesus' matchless name, amen.